0: hello
1: hello in front of
0: me this is oh oh no go
1: for it wow i think you should
0: introduce me first actually
1: well uh, yeah because do you know what you always go you know you always introduce me first and it's giving it's giving me a complex it's making me feel really important quite and i know that i'm not yes you are (laughs) um so on my ipad screen with brilliant sound quality i have to say is the absolutely fantastic, fabulous, blessed and highly favoured Dr. (laughs) Gemma Graham.
0: (laughs) How did I top that? In front of me is the handsome, entertaining, fabulous Dr. James P. Ravenhill. Thank
1: you very much. Now, James,
0: I don't know if you've noticed, but I've dyed my hair.
1: I did notice. So wait, what's going on here? I can't really work out the colour. It's darker.
0: The colour is espresso, apparently. (gasps) Now, what's happened, I'm just going to be totally honest with you, I had so much grey hair, I was actually thinking I'm never leaving the house. And so my husband did this, would you believe?
1: He is so... he's such a talented coiffeur,
0: Isn't he? He cuts my fringe and he dyes my hair. The whole time he was panicking. And also, (laughs) I will tell you how much hair dye I had on my ears and my forehead. And I've been trying, like, I got in touch with my hairdresser, like, I've had my, my relationship with my hairdresser is longer than my relationship with my husband, put it that way. And she was like, I really don't want you to box dye your hair. And I was like, I'm sorry, Heather, but this is embarrassing. Like, I can't go on with these massive grey bits coming down. So I think it's all right. What do you think?
1: I really, really like the colour.
0: Um, so, yeah, this is True Crime Lockdown.
1: True Crime Lockdown. And it's episode 5B. So what we decided, those uh, people who have already listened to 5A, which is the disappearance of Susan Powell, which was a uh, murder that I talked about, um, it was a pretty heavy story. And what we decided was after kind of I'd uh, related that story to Gemma, we were kind of a bit wiped and we felt a bit, uh, it just felt a bit like we needed to take a step back, um, think about that story, reflect on, yeah reflect on all the issues that that kind of generated and it just didn't feel right to carry on with another story at that time. Um, so we decided we'd present this kind of episode as it were in two parts. So today Gemma it's over to you.
0: It, it is and also just to say as well we spent a lot of the start of the last podcast talking about the Peter uh, Falconio case and Madeline McCann and It just felt so significant because the documentary had been on Channel 4 but also Madeleine McCann case is back in the news so we like to do a bit of a discussion about what is going on and any updates Um, but yeah that was a heavy case but it was an extraordinary story and I think it's something we really did need to speak about but we did need a break after it but today we're over to me now James would you like to hear about murder?
1: Do I? Oh my God, can I just say, I'm so excited about today's recording, and it's, well, one of the reasons is because I don't have to do, uh, talk about one, so it, what that means is, I've got a gin and tonic on the go, so what it means is, I can drink my gin and tonic without worried about later on getting all, you know, confused and slurry. Whereas I've
0: got a gin and tonic, and I will get confused and slurry as I <laughs>
1: Um, So I'm excited for that but also um, I know this is one that you've been quite excited to tell me about so yeah I'm just gonna kind of put myself on mute and just let you tell me I'm so excited.
0: Okay so feel free to jump in if there's anything that, that makes you go oh my goodness.
1: I will do for sure.
0: So where am I going for this murder James? Let's have a bit of a drum roll. Scotland.
1: We're going to Scotland. Oh, I've got an idea. But go on. Okay. I want to know. You
0: probably probably know. um, But this is the first time in true crime lockdown that I've gone to Scotland uh, to look at a case. And this case is particularly important because it is once again unsolved. Okay. So this is called the Dorset murder. Even the way I say murder is funny. <laughs> there's <laughs> That's been a murder. <laughs> there's been a murder. So this, this these,
1: these people won't the people listening won't remember Taggats probably.
0: Oh I know. what well, was That's such a good show. But it was like the bleakest, grimmest, greyest crime show from Glasgow. It, it was grim. It was that I grew up watching it. I was like, no wonder no one comes to Scotland. Like it's grey and it was <laughs> dead two seconds. Um, but this is an unsolved case back, from back in 2004. And it oh, involves, okay. Yeah, I don't know if it's familiar to you, but it involves a man called Alistair Wilson.
1: Nothing so far.
0: Excellent. Excellent. That's even better. So um, I've got quite a lot to tell you. So I'm going to go through um, all the things that I think are essential. As always, there's more to it than I can fit into on podcast. Um but just to let you know a couple of trigger warnings. So the first is I'm gonna be telling you details of a murder and also I won't play it on the podcast, but on the podcast page, I'm gonna put a quite distressing 999 call from Alistair's wife. So I'm gonna pop that and it is actually really upsetting to listen to. So that's the key things there. Um, my sources. is, um, so the first one is from another podcast. It's called The Doorstep Murder. Um, and it's, I think, six parts. Um, and it's a Scottish investigator who is uh, going through the case. And in the podcast, she um, gets an interview with Alistair's wife. And it's really, really fascinating what she has to say about it. And the other source is a BBC News article. Um, which is really in depth, so I'll put those sources up. There's another source that I've not read, but it's a book based on this crime. Now, it's by a guy called Peter Blexley. Now, you might know Peter Blexley from a show called Hunted.
1: Yeah, that's a really familiar name to me.
0: Yeah, so he was the sort of the chief of the hunters. Right. Um, And he also used to work for Scotland Yard. He's an ex-detective, so he's got a form. And he actually wrote a book called uh, To Catch a Killer, My Hunt for the Truth Behind the Door to Murder. Um, I've bought it. I've not read it yet. Um, I think I know enough about the case um, not to have read it. But he basically has made some conclusions that I'll tap into towards the end. But if you're interested in what I have to say, please do get the book. If not, listen to the podcast. OK, so um, I'm going to give you a bit of information about the place in Scotland and also Alistair Wilson and- family before going on to the crime. So we're in a place called Nairn. So that's N-A-I-R-N in Scotland. So this is the northeast of Scotland and it's about 17 miles from Inverness.
1: Isn't it where they make the oatcakes?
0: Oh yeah, maybe. N-
1: Nairn okay I'm sure it is. I think so.
0: Well James, didn't you do a road trip to Scotland not long ago? I, I did, know,
1: last year. Happened. Yeah, you gave, us a little, you gave us some tips. We had a brilliant time. I absolutely loved that holiday. It rained mm. kind of solidly for, a, you know, nine straight days, but it was fantastic. We would just take a little very cheap flight to uh, Edinburgh Airport, jumped in a car, and then, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so... I loved it.
0: You know roughly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah,
1: I can picture Well, Inverness, yeah, was on our, was on our route, so, yeah. Great.
0: Right. So, you know, it's a seaside time, um, about 11,000 people. Um, and just to give you a bit of context, so this crime took place in 2004 and um, the last murder in Nairn before that was 1986. Oh wow. And on that occasion a man was stabbed during an argument at a wedding reception.
1: Well they do say I mean you're more likely to be killed by your in-laws aren't you than anywhere else, anyone else. So. Quite.
0: Well quite yes. <laughs> bit nervy at my wedding but everyone survived I think. <laughs> So that's Nairn. It is not known
1: for crime. Okay. So small. It's not known t- for crime. <laughs> not, oh, <there's- laughs> that's Nairn. What is it known for?
0: Nairn's <laughs> known for crime. <laughs> <laughs> no, that accent was. Um, that was good. So we are. Duh, 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 duh see we're having a bit of gin now you see this is where it goes it goes wrong so this is the 28th of november 2004 and it's a sunday um so basically we have the wilson family they live at 10 crescent roads and they've got this huge house um in the attic of the house um veronica who's alistair's wife um, her father lives there so they've made almost made like a bit of an extension so he lives in the house along with Alistair, Veronica, his wife, and their two boys, who at the time, I believe, were two and four. I'll double-check that, but they were young. Um, So a little bit about the Wilsons. Let me just scroll down. So that Sunday, just so to give a bit of context, they had spent the day, like a lot of us do, with friends. They'd gone for a walk, and then they'd gone back to their house to have a roast dinner. Uh, have a bit of a catch up and then um, at the end of the night Alistair was putting the boys to bed and reading a story. So pretty standard Sunday. Obviously it was November so it got dark really early. Um, so that is that. So um, Veronica and Alistair in 2004 they'd already been married for six years. Um, they had a really whirlwind romance when they first met. So within, I think it was six weeks of meeting, they were engaged. So very whirlwind, but obviously it stood the test of time. Six years in, oh, yes, yeah, so they had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time um, of that day, 2004. Uh, Veronica was from Fort William, which is the place you might be familiar with.
1: Yeah, isn't it the base for... Uh exploring ben nevis it's a bit of a mm-hmm. dump of a town i'm oh, sorry to anybody listening who's from fort william but i was a bit like hell oh, right this is fort william lovely no one you know what i mean people go in get cheap fuel from morrison's and then go and climb the mountain
0: well yeah and um, also there's a place there near there called glencoe which is one of my oh, favorite
1: beautiful places.
0: it's just stunning it's stunning. It's gorgeous yeah. fort william's a bit of a base so it's petrol alcohol whatever yeah. you need Off, then off you go. Um, so that's where she's from. Uh, so Alistair, well, he, he went to university and he then started working for the Bank of Scotland, uh, which is Halifax back here, um, and he continued to work for the bank straight up until his death. Okay, so that's just a bit of background into those two. So the actual night in question, so as I say, they had their friends round, they had their family, they left, uh, Veronica's dad was upstairs in the sort of attic annex um, area, and Alistair was sat reading a bedtime story to the two boys. This is about seven o'clock at night, and then the front door goes. Uh, So Veronica decides, Right, you're doing the, I'll go and answer the door. A bit unusual at that time, and their friends already left, but um, she decided to go down and see who was at the door. She opened the door and there was a man standing there and the only thing he said was Alistair Wilson. So no hello, no how are you doing, no I am this person. It was very much Alistair Wilson. She found this really unusual so she said hang on a minute, went upstairs and said well I think she called him Al. So Al there's a man at the door who's asked for you by name. So he was like, okay, i will go and have a quick chat with him. So Veronica stayed with the boys and continued the story and Alistair went downstairs to the door. So a couple of minutes passed and Veronica could then hear Alistair coming back up the stairs. Now he opened the bedroom door and he said, what did that man say when he came to the door? And she said, just Alistair Wilson, nothing else. And he's like, it's really strange. Now in his hand, he was holding a blue envelope. Now we're going to come back to that later. So he says, right, I'm just, I'm going to have another chat with him. Now what this guy? This
1: guy's still at the door. When he goes upstairs, right.
0: He shuts the door. So he shuts the door, goes up, comes back down, opens the door again. So Veronica can hear all of this. The key thing, when Veronica's interviewed by the police later, is Alistair's demeanor wasn't scared or fearful. He was very much like, more confused. Like, are you sure he's asking me? So there was, and if he was scared, Veronica said, there's no way he would have gone back downstairs. He'd already shut the front door. So there was, you know, a number of times, it was a short period of time, but he could have stayed in the house. He didn't have to open the door again, but he did. He went back down and opened the door. Um, So Veronica was, um, um, with the boys, and then after about a minute, she heard three loud bangs. Oh my God! She ran downstairs, and Alistair was found on the doorstep. He'd been shot three times, twice in the head and once chest. Oh my God! Um, amazingly, at this point, he was still alive, but barely. Like he couldn't speak or anything. Um, and so the nine 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 call which I won't play on here, but I will put up on the podcast page. That's the 999 call that takes place straight after she's found him. And it is really stressing. And bearing in mind, you know, she's got her two kids upstairs. Her dad is upstairs as well. So I think for Alistair, he had no sense of, you know, fear or concern. He certainly didn't give that impression when he came up the stairs. And I think if you've got your children in the house and you had any concern whatsoever, there's no way you would go back to that door. I just can't see it happening um so that's all we know for now now as i said at the start this is an unsolved case so no one has ever been arrested for this but there are elements of this case which are very strange and i'm going to take you through some of the key bits of it okay yeah so the first thing i wanted to talk about um was the envelope so i said that Asdor came upstairs and he was holding an envelope. Now, the police in this investigation, they decided that they would withhold some information. Now, we've spoken about this in previous cases, haven't we?
1: Yeah, that's like, they, I mean, they do it for a number of reasons, but I guess one of them is to make sure that they don't get every Tom, Dick, and, like, Harry, whatever, going, you know, attention-seeking, and, like, you know, something to do with me. And then it's like, yeah, right, every murder in this town is something to do with you, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, what was really important is, you know, if someone was to phone the police and they had information that hadn't been released, we all know how important and significant that is. So the police decided not to release any significant information about the envelope at all. They've only recently done that. um, And that features on the podcast. So they decided all these years, they would start to release more information. Um, So the first thing that we found out, and Veronica was very aware of this at the time, is the envelope had nothing inside. So it was an empty envelope. Wow! Yeah. However, it did have, on the front of it, it had the word Paul.
1: P-A-U-L?
0: Yep. Now the police refused to tell um, anyone whether it's typed, how it's written, how big it is, the, the, the pen or pencil that was used. They won't really send me further information about that, but all they have said. So it was a blue envelope. It's about the size of like a birthday card envelope. So it was relatively small. And um, it was open, but there was nothing inside. And then the only thing on the front was the name Paul. So straight away, you could see why Alistair would have come upstairs like, what on earth is this? Um, it didn't make a huge amount of sense. Uh, my,
1: first thing, my first thing is Is there DNA on the envelope where it's been licked? That was just like, was it sealed? And if so, was it licked? And is there DNA?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, there's, no, there's been nothing found on it. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about Paul. Is it a person? Is it an acronym? Does it, uh, is it something that only Alistair would know? Is it some sort of threat? Is it to do with a gang? You know, there, there's been a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. that It might not actually be the name Paul, but it might mean something else. Um, but as Veronica said, as he was standing holding the envelope, there was no fear. He didn't really draw attention to it. So he didn't go, what on earth is this? He kind of just had it loosely in his hands, um, which in itself is so strange. Uh, so yeah, like I say, the, that's the only information we have about it and that envelope was removed from the scene oh yeah that's why they didn't get dna so the envelope it was removed it was taken away so all they could go on was veronica sort of I oh know,
1: so the it. guy the guy who knocked on the door took away the envelope with the with,
0: right. he took it out.
1: it's Absolutely. not it's not possible that alistair gave the guy at the door the pool envelope so he was holding it with the intention of giving it to the guy at the door.
0: Yeah, so he, Alistair was holding it. He went back down. He obviously had, handed it back. Well, it, right. Not, I still
1: had it. I mean, but what I mean is, could it have come from him in the first place? So it wasn't like he's in receipt of it and then going, oh, this is weird. Who's this guy? It's like he's like he's gone upstairs and being like, oh, who is this guy? Like, what's going on with this guy? But he's going to give him the pool envelope.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Veronica had never seen it before. Like, right. It was,
1: so there's no way of knowing.
0: Uh, there was nothing. There was nothing of significance of why it would have come from the house. It definitely. I think he kind of did this as, as to say, you know, but there was not. He didn't make a fuss about it.
1: How did they know there was nothing in it? Uh, Veronica acknowledged oh. that. Yeah. so
0: uh, well, I guess the other thing is, I'm going to describe the man at the door. So I'm just to describe, this is how Veronica remembered him. So he was white, stockily built, with a dark baseball cap pulled over his face.
1: No. Huh? Don't, don't wear a dark baseball cap on a November evening. Like, what are you doing?
0: I know, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, she says he was clean-shaven, wearing a dark blue bomber-style jacket, dark jeans. He was about 35 to 40, five foot six to five foot ten. So that's the all the information we have. I will talk to you in a little bit about someone who thinks they saw him prior to the crime. Um, so yeah, that is that for now. It really annoys me about the envelope. I need to know if that was taken or not. I think, I think he might have made a comment about um, the envelope not having an address on it. So I think, you know... It had nothing except this name on the front. Right. And Alistair, yeah, okay. So here Alistair shows her the envelope and it was empty. She said he was puzzled, but no fear. The door's closed. We have the phone right next to us and we have my dad on the top floor. The couple briefly discuss the situation, but Alistair insists on going back down to see if the man is still there. Um, the man is still standing on the doorstep, and then that's when, about a minute later, she hears the loud bangs. All very strange. Um, she runs out. He was still barely breathing. He was losing a lot of blood, and as she looked up, she could see the killer, um, just leaving. And <sighs> him away. so she did get the bang. So there was no like, in a strange way, there was no immediate rush from the killer. He didn't shoot him and then leg it. He very much walked away. I should also say their house was opposite a pub, so there could have easily been witnesses. Now we know because it was seven o'clock and it was November, we know that it was dark, but there still could have been, you know, witnesses of some sort. Uh, one hour after being shot, Alistair dies in hospital.
1: Oh, that's so sad. It's awful, isn't it's two it? Two little kids as well. Oh,
0: Yeah so let me just go to one of the witnesses sorry i've got so much information about this see what it's like yeah have you never heard this case
1: i've never heard it no
0: okay so um there was a local man called tommy hogg um and he and his wife they've been traveling back from a wedding in perth on the 28th and they were dropped off at Inverness bus station and then they boarded the bus to Nairn. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny that now. Um, Tommy Hogg recalls being disturbed by a strange man who sat next to him. It's nothing worse is there someone sits next to you on the bus? No. He said to myself as soon as as soon as the guy got on the bus he said to his wife he's very strange there's something weird about him. He kept looking at him and every time he caught the stranger's eye he would kind of shuffle his collar up and pull his hat down and um, Tommy said the man got off the bus stop just before Alistair's house and headed in the direction of the house after the couple returned home so this is Tommy Hogg and his wife their unsettling encounter brought sharply back into focus when they found out um, what would be happened now this is just classic um small town in Scotland or just small so towns. He says, later on, my wife went to the local chippy to get us some dinner, where she was told that someone had been shot. So that's how you uh, you get your news. And the chip shop. the chip shop. So she came back and said, you're not going to believe this, there's been a murder. And that's when they started to put two and two together, that they saw this really strange looking man heading towards the house, not too long before the the murder took place. Now, so that's always been quite significant. And Tommy says, I'll never ever forget his face. I can, I can visualise it. We were all, we sat on the, it was 17 miles from Inverness to Nairn. So it's a decent amount of time. And he was sat next to him. So it's not like he was like right down the far end of the bus or upstairs or anything like that. Um, and what was really interesting is how the police um, dealt with it. So, Something that has been a massive criticism of the police in this case is they decided not to produce an e-fit from Tommy. So at no point did they say, do you know what, let's get you in and let's have a look. But they also didn't ask Veronica to do it. So Veronica, who has opened the door to this man, and despite the fact he had a hat on, she could see his face. She was able to describe him. She knew he was clean shaven. So that's enough, you know, information, I think. Right.
1: You've got two I mean, eyewitnesses that, that could produce quite a kind of comprehensive account of what the person looked like, enough yes. to maybe do a, an e yeah. So no e was done. I think that's really strange. That, I don't get that at all,
0: that makes no sense to me.
1: Especially like if you've got a small community, 11,000 people is not a big community at all. So if it is somebody local, then, it's, then they're likely to, to be known. Um, and even, you know, Inverness is not a massive city, you know, if you think Brighton and Hove has got a population of what 280 290 and yeah when i'm running walking around the city i see people i recognize all the time
0: same here especially since sort of lockdown and things and you've yeah. seen spaces running walking at the local shop and you know you see how people get their information it's all close-knit people know who everyone is and that could have been so significant, actually. Get, get the sort of picture up at the bus station, on the buses, um, in the chip shop. You know, it sounds daft, but getting that information out might just trigger someone. To, I think it's significant enough, this man got off the bus and started walking towards the house. I think that in itself is enough to investigate. But um, Was there yeah. any
1: CCTV from the fish and chip shop or the pub?
0: No. Mm-mm. So now to the murder weapon. So again, this is, is bonkers how this comes about. Um, so some of the community had been complaining about block drains, believe it or not. So they'd been complaining and complaining to the council, we've got these block drains, you need to sort them, you need to get someone out and get them cleaned. Um, and so they sent um, a council worker out called Andy McMahon and he started, um, Got in the drain or whatever it is they do, and as he was doing it, he saw something at the bottom of the drain, and he couldn't quite make it out at first. So he took some more the rubbish out, and he thought for a second it was a gun, but he thought, "Oh, I bet someone's just playing a joke on me, or it's a toy gun." Now the gun itself, he said, was tiny; it didn't even look like a proper gun. So in his head, he just thought oh no but he had the murder obviously in the back of his head um and this was december so it only it's only the start of december it hadn't been that long since the killing um so he says at first i thought it was a dummy gun because of the size of it it was tiny um he said with it being down a drain i thought it was somebody playing a sick joke after what happened um he then managed to get the gun out of the drain and he said, it wasn't until I got the gun and I felt the weight of it, I realised it wasn't a toy. Um, so days later, a test revealed that the antique handgun is the weapon that killed Alistair Wilson. So it had been dumped down the drain. Now, I'll put a picture of the gun on the podcast page. It's tiny, James. It's so small. Um, I, I, did, I sort of looked up. It's, called, it's from the 1920s. I'm looking up guns now. God, I'm gonna be on a list somewhere, haven't I? Um, it's from the 1920s. It's called a Haino Schmeiser semi-automatic. Now it's nicknamed a pocket pistol, and it's believed that this is the weapon of choice for prostitutes because you can conceal it.
1: Oh, makes sense. Yeah,
0: makes sense. It's tiny. You know, it reminds me of a, a lighter my granddad used to have, which was a tiny gun. Yeah had a flame <laughs> yeah. that's how small it is it's tiny i'll, I'll send some photos over so small
1: yet can do so much damage though
0: yeah well that's it isn't it yeah so 10 days later this is where the gun was found um so the guns were made in germany before world war Two. if you're interested with the history lesson and they got a forensic firearms expert to take a look at it and he was really surprised to see it. They're so rare in the UK. He said over the last 10 years, there have only been a handful of those guns recovered in the UK. Um, so I think five were surrendered to the police um, after an elderly relative died or moved. Two were given up during them amnesties and four were used in crimes. That's I it. love
1: the idea of like loads of old Scottish people hoarding tiny little guns in their houses.
0: Honestly, yeah. it doesn't surprise me. It, is. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. It's like the most deranged uh, episode anti Roadshow ever, isn't it? <laughs> but he said, you know, they're so small you can put them away in your pocket, nobody would notice. Um so yeah, that was unusual. Uh the other strange thing is, um, so Police Scotland they started to investigate in the Alistair Wilson case back in 2016 so obviously it started to go a bit cold and they actually found um, a bit
1: cold a bit cold that's, four, that's 12 years later <laughs> oh that's quite cold then <laughs> it's stone cold
0: it's ice age ice age cold and um, they found another gun in there and it was the same one so not the one that killed Alistair um there's an identical gun to the murder weapon and it was found um in 2016 so it was belgium made it was very similar and just the fact that it was found in the same time was bonkers there was no there was no link or dna or affiliation but what are the chances a little seaside town in scotland they've got two of these really unusual guns
1: right i don't you don't really think of scottish people as being big Gun toting people, but apparently they are. So, where do you hide yours, Gemma? That's the question.
0: Couldn't possibly tell you, James. Couldn't possibly tell you.
1: Is that a gun <laughs> in your pocket? Is that a little gun in your pocket? Or are you just pleased to see me? <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it
0: looks like it wouldn't make an impact, but it would. Let me tell you. Um, you made me lose my train of thought. What were on about, right. What 2016
1: about? they find another one of the guns yeah
0: yeah. so yeah so not unusual so a lot of these guns in Poland um, there's a lot of Polish servicemen based in Scotland during the war so they think they might have got there that way anyway my history lesson is over I shall return to the crime and um, I'll put the photos up uh, so you can have a look so Uh, Months after Alistair's killing, the police investigation into his murder was dealt a huge blow when no identifiable DNA was found on the gun. But um, a few years after that, they decided... so DNA had got better, and in terms of using it in investigations. So when they reopened the case, um, and there's like 20 officers on the case uh, from 2014, and they decided to use more advanced testing. And it was called DNA24, and I don't know if you've come across it before. Um, but in the past, the DNA profiling kit would look um, at eleven areas of DNA, and now you can look at twenty-four. So it's much more advanced um, in terms of getting DNA on things. Right. Um, which is great. I mean, DNA evidence in itself is fascinating and controversial, as we saw with the Peter Falconio case. But the fact that you can now look at all these different um, different bits is exciting. So not heard anything yeah. else about that yet. So you never know what might come from that. Uh, so that is the gun. So you know about the Wilsons, you know about Alistair. you know about the crime, the offender, witnesses. The envelope and obviously they've now found the gun down the drain. I'm going to tell you now about a tip-off that has come in about this murder. So, I don't know if you know of the name John Beattie. you probably don't because you're not from Scotland. No. I don't know if you're a rugby fan.
1: No, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, I'm not rugby. No, no. Why?
0: No, it's
1: all too exhausting. No, I'm a Real Housewives fan. I'm a oh. Drag Race fan. I'm a, you know, I'm. I like lying around and not thinking about having to be in a muddy field. Yeah, but
0: you don't have to be in the field. You get
1: to watch the men. <laughs> I think it's just PTSD from when I was at school and I had to play it. So I think that was. <laughs> it's just. It's just. I'm still recovering from that.
0: I just think the men are so talented. Um, oh, I bet
1: so you I, do, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so I love rugby, as you know, I'm a huge fan. So John Beatty, he's an ex-Scotland uh, rugby player and in 2016 he has his own radio show. Uh, so it's like a lunchtime radio show. And um, on the 12th anniversary of Alistair's murder, so is the 28th November 2016, he decides to speak about the case just to raise a bit of awareness um, and just see if anything, you know, a bit like we used to do on Crime Watch, revisit it, talk about the main evidence, and he'd been interviewing a criminologist who you might have heard of called Professor David Wilson. So, Professor David Wilson was given um, a bit of an insight into the case, into the envelope. Um,
1: Why do I know him? What's he done?
0: he does loads of things like the tv documentaries um you've probably seen him he's been around a while he's one of the like talking people they go to um
1: like a talking head on a crime documentary yeah yeah, yeah.
0: so he is basically doing this interview with john beatty they're going through the case which i think you know is you know on the anniversary is it's a good time to bring up the case again see if it jogs anybody's memories you never know do you you never know what might happen um so as John Beatty is sort of interviewing David, a message appears on his computer screen in the studio and it's the producer. And the producer has been told there's someone on the phone who believes they know what happened that night and they'd left a number. So John they asked John to phone him and he would speak. So after his programme finishes, uh, John calls the man back. He says he lives somewhere in Scotland but doesn't want to give his name and he sounds scared. So John just calls him Peter. He doesn't really say why but he has the name he gives him. So it's the first of a number of conversations John has with Peter where um, he names names, uh, details a motive and expresses his fear for life. Peter tells John about a friend of his which we'll call Andrew um, who said he was able to name the individual behind Alistair's death. Um, so Pete's friend Andrew claimed he'd been doing some work for a Highland businessman who was also involved with a former loyalist paramilitary from, the Nor- from Northern Ireland. Yeah, so records show that the, uh, where, so obviously also worked for the Bank of Scotland, and um, so records show that um, the Bank of Scotland, they did do the banking uh, for one of this businessman's companies. So there is that link, there's a link between the bank and this businessman's um, bank accounts. Now, the 2004 is a time where banks were lending out so much money. So, this is before the crash. So, this before the
1: crash, yeah, everything's like the prices of everything are going like houses, property is booming. Yeah, everyone's so- feeling quite well off.
0: Yeah, and a lot of Alistair's role in the bank. And he, he changed, he worked in Edinburgh, Vernet. you know, he moved about the bank and was trying to work his way up. And he did deal with a lot of the bigger accounts. So we're talking big money. Um, and he did a lot of investing. And like at the time, banks were basically giving out money. So it wasn't a case that there would be grief about not getting money because right. it, it was like monopoly money. We're just, and then obviously the inevitable happened. But at this time... In 2004 that wasn't a problem um so back to Andrew so this is Peter's friend who's got all this information so when Andrew started to question the businessman about the work they were doing together he said the former paramilitary, paramilitary, this is the now, paramilitary allegedly threatened his life and that of his family Andrew said the man told him that he owned guns so all this information came about over three conversations that John Beatty had with this Peter. Um, Peter, after every conversation, would plea for his safety, you know, saying how much danger he's in, um, but he felt like he had to tell someone what he knew. And then he sort of disappeared. Um, he comes back a little bit later on, but he kind of, I don't know if he's frightened or he feels he's given too much information, he kind of goes off radar. So John Beattie gets in touch with the police, of course, and gives all this information. Um, And Fiona Walker, so she's the one who does the podcast. So she's from an investigations unit. So she takes up the story and actually manages to get back in touch with Peter. Um, And that really starts off her relationship with it and why she does the podcast in the first place. So she starts to speak to him on the phone.
1: Is she a journalist or a police officer?
0: she is uh so fiona walker from bbc scotland's investigations unit yes um so this is what she said so she was asking a lot of questions to peter just to sort of source how credible he was so she said um there were things that were bothering me Things he couldn't answer directly because he wasn't the source of the allegation. It was his friend. And he wouldn't put me in touch with his friends. This is Andrew, who has connections with the businessman. He said, she said there are holes in his story, which doesn't mean to say it wasn't true. It's just needing more information. She said he was really nervous on the phone. He talked about exposing people um, who have obviously killed someone and he was worried for his own life. Yet some key parts of his information checked out. And my instinct was that he truly believed what he was telling me. But the reality is the evidence um, didn't stand up. Um, And it wasn't strong enough basically for the police to go after anyone. So Fiona decided to write to Veronica Wilson, so Alistair's wife. Uh, She still lives in the same house.
1: Oh my gosh, so she never even moved. She didn't move you do find that though like some people who've experienced kind of trauma in a in a house that like you would think that their instinct is to move on and and kind of consign that to the past but maybe there's some sort of comfort from being in the same property i don't know i don't know i, th- I feel like i would move out
0: it was strange because fiona decided to post the letter to veronica herself the dispatcher stood on that doorway um and she said it was it was very exposing. So she could see in the living room window from the doorstep. You know, it wasn't particularly secure. Um, even So after, not, like,
1: not like scared that the guy's going to return, you know, years later or anything like that?
0: No, there was no sense that there was no CCTV camera. There was no sense that anything else had been changed. You can interpret as you wish later on. Um, so Veronica eventually said that she would speak to Fiona, so early on in the case, a lot of people blamed Veronica. So they, for whatever reason, thought she had some involvement in the case. And a lot of this was down to her demeanor. So when she was being interviewed, it, people were saying, oh, she's very cold. And, and to be honest, James, when you listen to that 999 call, you, you can hear how scared she is, you know. And why would she do it when her two kids were upstairs, her father's upstairs? But there is the speculation, of course um that she might have been involved somehow, so that's always been a theory that's been out there.
1: I think the press just love those stories, don't they like? They love the idea of um they love the idea of a this you know a female killer and this um you know this cold hearted non kind of gender-conforming woman being the killer. They're just obsessed with that story. I think it will always make a good story.
0: Yeah I'm just not convinced like when you read about their life together and I think one of the key things is obviously speaking to sort of friends and family Mm. and they're not you know they had problems in their marriage you know things were difficult it was very much yeah, things had changed since they had children, but they still like on that Sunday they had friends over, they still had a roast. Um
1: Yeah, don't have children, it ruins everything. <laughs> I'm joking, bloody hell. He's not. We'll get not. ten emails now complaining.
0: How dare you say that? Uh, So yeah, you know, you see there's photos from their wedding day and things, they just look really happy. But I guess the police have to go down that avenue, don't they? They have to investigate the people closest to you. Um, But she, you know, constantly says throughout how shocked she is. There's nothing in Alistair's life that would have made her concerned for his safety at all, that she was aware of. There was then speculation that he was having an affair. Um, which so again, How, that's how just much pl- do you ever
1: really know, though, about the person you're with? Like, d- yeah, d- so many times, I'm reading a, a, a book at the moment, a true crime book about this guy who's like, he's just like the perfect partner, you know, completely doting, no suspicions as to his uh, intentions, anything like that. And then boom, just all of a sudden, I want a divorce. I'm sleeping with your best friend. Oh. I mean, I know it's really, really rare, but I do... I do think that it's kind of scary that you can never fully know, you know, the details of your partner's life. Especially, I think you know, 16 years ago, is it possible that he felt like I don't know? I don't know what really what I'm saying. I'll, I'll get this. can uh, edit this. Bit out, this bit out. But is it possible that he was like keeping stuff from her that she just didn't know?
0: I don't think she actually fully appreciated. How complex his job was and actually right. something that I, I missed out earlier he was about to move to a different bank so he was two weeks it was two weeks before he was about to change jobs
1: oh well that's interesting the,
0: the police have always found that quite significant um i'll tell you that i'll tell you about that theory so there are all their ongoing investigations into Alistair's personal financial situation and his work, but the police will not disclose details. Mm. So they will not. They will not talk about this at all. Um, so he worked with the Bank of Scotland since leaving university in 1996. He'd been to Fort William. He'd worked in Edinburgh. So the Bank of Scotland uh, headquarters are in Edinburgh. He worked in private financial projects, specialist. So he was high up. It wasn't. He was very special, working with big money, very important people, um, and then he eventually got a, a position in a bank in Inverness, so Bank of Scotland, which meant he was close to, they'd moved to Nairn and they started building their life up. Um, So in 2001, Bank of Scotland merged with uh, the Halifax and became HBOS, and Alistair's murder was four years before the financial crash, so banks were still in the heyday of, London, as I said before, or- they were out. So the year before his murder, the ambitious banker was promoted to lead a business banking team responsible for securing loans uh, for small to medium-sized companies in the north of Scotland. Um, However, he'd become disillusioned and had accepted another job um, and he had two weeks left of his notice period to serve and then he was killed. so in the months after his murder newspapers reported Alistair was unhappy uh, with his position at the bank Um, and he had taken it hard when a multi million pound loan he thought he'd secured for a firm in Orkney was turned down by head office.
1: Mm, Right, okay.
0: Now this is the media again, so the media reported that he had connections to gangs in Glasgow one says Alistair borrowed £50,000 from moneylenders um, and there were suggestions he didn't really know what he was getting himself into. Nothing else has come from that yet, but that is speculation. Former colleagues of Alistair at the bank have remained silent. They don't think it's their place anything, except that they have been interviewed by police over and over again kind
1: of indicating that the police have suspicions that this is somehow related to business or, or yeah. I th- the thing is about the financial world, Like, I don't know really anything about the financial world, but it just seems to me that when you're in big business, you, the chances of you uh, mixing with and working with uh, kind of dangerous people or people with bad intentions is just greater. It's, I feel like the more money you have and the higher up you go, in you know, like that moneyed world, the more likely it is that some of that money is going to be dirty money. Exactly. So who knows? I mean, I'm not accusing him of anything. And I'm, you know, I'm sure lots of people work in the financial industry and, and are absolutely completely above board and everyone they know is completely above board. But it just increases that potential, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and I'm getting the sense when reading about him, he was ambitious, you know, he wanted to work up in the bank, he got himself quite high up, and he was dealing with big money, and there was that frustration there that something didn't work out, and we know that money is one of the main motivators for crime. Yeah. So, you know, I think there is something, for me, reading all the evidence, there potentially is something there, Um, but again, the police are saying very shtum about it. The other theory, I think you'll find this interesting. So the one Veronica is sticking with, is she believes it was a case of mistaken identity. I
1: wanted that, yeah.
0: So this is a theory that hasn't been ruled out by police, despite having spoken to a number of other Alice Wilsons in the Highlands. Um, So DS Gary Cunningham, he says, we have to look at personal, we have to look at professional, we have to look at associations. It is possible it's mistaken identity. Right, you ready for this? There was another Alistair Wilson in Nairn, just a few minutes walk from where <sighs> the- he was in his 60s and he died at the end of last year. A neighbour said he felt very uneasy about sharing the same name but couldn't think of any reason why he would be a target. What are the chances? To- I mean, did the, police,
1: to- did the police do any investigation into that Alistair?
0: Apparently they did, but again they're not saying much about it, so the mistaken identity theory does have legs to it. There's so much to this case James, this is literally just me scraping the surface. Um, So the newspapers at the time um, were obviously, so one of the headlines in the Sunday Mail, murder cops to quiz uh, 18 of Alistair Wilson's colleagues. what else was there? This was no random shooting, census murder, case mistaken and identity. Another headline in the Scottish Daily Mirror: the IRA link to slaying of banker. So this whole Irish paramilitary link that was, you know, really caught onto by the media. Um, so uh, Fiona asked Veronica, you know, was Alistair in debt or any financial trouble? Um, and she said she wasn't aware of it. And the police officer in charge of the case said, this is still a life investigation. I can't go into detail about that. Mm. But again, being very um, minimalistic in terms of detail about finances.
1: So is it still an open case?
0: Oh, yeah, very much so. So much so that I, this, I mean, the detail I'm giving you is, is public detail. But um, there's a lot that's been held back. From it, that's why I found quite frustrating when researching it. I was like, "Oh come on!" And even on the podcast, you just think, "Oh, it's just constant that we can't." It's a live investigation. We can't. Do. It's same same with the Delphi murders. Like how little information they gave. Um. Okay, so um, that's probably the main theory. So the link with potentially pale military IRA, a business deal that's gone wrong. He was in his own financial debt. Uh, A case of mistaken identity. Um, They seem to be the key theories in the case. Um, So about the the kids, um, the four-year-old is now a young man. Uh, Apparently he's a spitting image of Alistair. I mean, you see, he's just a lovely, smiley guy. He just looks so happy. Uh, But I know that's not always the case. I don't know what's going on. They said the impact on both him and his brothers felt every day They've had 13 years of not knowing who killed their father or why, and it's left a burning sense of injustice. So Veronica says they can't understand why somebody would do it to their dad and why no one's been caught. Uh, They have a huge problem with justice now. Um, If someone did something wrong in the house, she says, even minor things, the boy wanted them to be punished. Uh, The Wilsons were relatively new to Nairn at the time. and after the death, Veronica was really concerned that the townspeople would turn against them or not be supportive. Um, she was worried they wouldn't be accepted into the community because just there's so much that came with it. Obviously, no one had been caught. There's that fear factor, isn't there? Like there's a killer out there.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, people have that. There's no smoke without fire, don't they? Like, I think even yeah. when the police say things like, oh, it's mistaken identity. I think people still hold that fundamental belief, oh, well, it wouldn't happen to me. There must be something uh, about them. And I, I just think it's a way of people coping and distancing themselves from the potential of them being victims of crime. They just say, well, there must be something wrong with that person. They must have done something to deserve that, uh, that kind of vict- victimhood.
0: Exactly. Um, another thing is when the children en- entered their school years, Veronica was so concerned that classmates wouldn't be allowed to stay over or come to the house because it's the house, you know, where a merger taking place. But the locals did let the kids come over. And in fact, uh, the first Christmas, without answer, keep in mind how close it was. So the 28th November, he was killed. So the first Christmas, people in the town came over with Christmas presents for the boys. So all the town round around, bought them presents. That's lovely. So she, the complete opposite happened. Actually, the time rallied drowned and looked after her. Um, but I think she always just... And even in, when you hear her on the podcast being interviewed, you can still hear in her voice. She feels like people blame her. And um, I think she just... For her boys, you know, there's no justice. There's no explanation. They were just upstairs when it happened. Um, it's incredibly uh, traumatic. Um, Oh, okay. So, regarding Veronica's decision to stay in the house, um, people were quite surprised by that, and also because no one's been caught, I think it would be a very it would be completely understandable for someone to move uh, when a murder has taken place. Um, but for the family, they're desperate to know what happened, and uh, there's no closure. And uh, the police have said it is such a strange case. Um, and they said up in the Highlands of Scotland, murders are nearly always solved. I think because they're so rare. Um, the police have said Veronica's not a suspect, but while the murder remains unsolved, suspicion has fallen on her. Um, a more a case of trial by media, I would say. And um, she said, Now that my children are becoming adults, I just don't want them to have the life that I've had to lead, knowing that people are talking about me all the time. Um, I always try to put myself in their position. What would I think if I read about us? And do I believe that they're, they'd be able to sleep at night? Um, it just makes me feel very uncomfortable. And she said, why would she leave her children without a father? Why would she have them brutally murdered at the family home when the boys were there? Um, so she says, for her and her sons, life passes, but they're not really living. Um, she says, we need to know why it's just so senseless. Our life won't be anything without answers. And that is the case of Alistair Wilson and the doorstep murder.
1: So, oh, I just hate these cold cases. I mean, I love these cold cases, but I hate these cold cases because it's just so frustrating. And it just seems to me that actually the police do know something. and. It just strikes me that they know something and they actually, they're letting these theories play out in the media. They know uh, either, they might not know who did it, but they know something about this guy. Um, And that for whatever reason, there isn't enough, maybe evidence, maybe all the evidence is circumstantial. And it will probably stay a um, closed case and a cold case, sorry, unless new evidence comes to light or someone comes forward. It's just really sad for the family once again these cold cases.
0: Exactly and I think as well the financial side of it is you know that is really what got me hooked into the case because there's just so much going on there Mm. Um, and we know as I said before money is a massive motive when it comes to crime but it looks like because he was dealing with massive amounts of money there were some dodgy characters involved with that Um, and I do think that needs more attention but the the way the police talk on the podcast, you can tell that's a line of inquiry. They are going down and they're not going to be about at. it. I just found it, uh, I found it shocking and to blatantly go to someone's house and kill them. And what I, what I don't understand, the final thing I'll leave you with, why didn't he kill him immediately? Why did he wait until he shut the door, went back in the house? So at that point you could have just locked the door from the police. Mm. In my head I was thinking this is a professional hit. And if that was the case, surely he wouldn't let the opportunity go by. It would just be very much a case of kill him and go. But, but why he, did
1: the why did Alistair <laughs> open the door again? I mean, it, it seems like that he might have either been known or known to him, or what they the topic under discussion on the doorstep was a topic that was, you know, familiar to him.
0: Well, Peter Blexley in his book, so I did do a little bit of reading um, around what his thoughts were on it without reading the book. Obviously, the book itself will have uh, a lot more information. But he he basically went up to Nairn and he spent a lot of time there. He did his own investigating. Um, and this is his thing. He's been doing this for years. He was very high up in Scotland Yard. Um, and his sort of theory is that actually... Um, yeah, so his theory is that Mr, so Alistair Wilson was not meant to die that night. He said that he's been told by someone who he won't reveal that Mr. Wilson was made an offer that night and if he had accepted he would have lived. Uh, The former Scotland Yard officer added, I can't disclose my sources. The person who knocked at the door just after seven on the 28th of November went to negotiate and not to assassinate. Hmm. Sorry. Well, <laughs> we maybe go.
1: one day, one maybe one day we'll find out. I just think it's really unlikely. I think the police know, but don't know enough to to either, you know, name a suspect or um, pursue a prosecution.
0: It's like something out like an Ag- Agatha Christie you know novel the, the gun, the really unusual yeah tiny gun, the, the envelope. Nothing else has come of that. Who's Paul? Does it stand for something else? Is it a threat? you know is it a link to one of these businessmen as soon as
1: you said doorstep murder or doorstep shooting i thought of jill dando straight away
0: yeah i mean that it was interesting in the podcast they speak to a criminologist and he brings up the jill dando case he said mm-hmm. it's very blazing actually yeah to go to the house and kill them on their actual doorstep the one place you feel secure jill and dando that,
1: was in the middle of the day even at least yeah, this was, was under morning, cover of darkness
0: in the morning wasn't it yeah um, so the criminologist is convinced it was a hitman, but I still have those questions of if you're there, you're sent there to do, to do a specific job, why, you know, risk him closing the door in front of the police?
1: You don't waste time.
0: Which makes me think that something has been said to get Alistair's interest and to get him back down to the door. But we'll never know. They were the only two people that were there during the conversation. So there we have it.
1: Well done. Thank you very much.
0: You're very welcome. Um, Should we talk
1: about something that um, is a bit more cheerful than murder to end on?
0: Yeah. Have can. you got anything? Mm. Well, it doesn't sound cheerful to start with, but it gets better. So it's my brother's 30th birthday on the 26th of June.
1: Your so baby was, brother. My,
0: my baby brother. My little, my little brother. I say little brother. He's like six foot God knows what. He towers <laughs> over me. Um, but I'm obviously devastated. I can't go and celebrate. We'd obviously have had a party, we'd have been up in Scotland. He's very much of the, uh, oh, it doesn't matter sis, it doesn't matter, I'm writing this year off. Mm. You know, make him sound like a moody teenager, he's not, but he's not for it at all. And I, I was like, well, what do you want? You know, What can I get you? Do you, do, you want, do you just want money to come buy something? Do you want something? And he was like, I don't want anything. Mm. So what I've done, and this sounds really cheesy, but bear with me. So. Um, I'm not going to go into it, but for uh, specific reasons, me and my brother didn't actually uh, grow up together. We, we lived together for two years, um, when he was zero to two, and uh, I was a bit older, and then we uh, were separated. And the the only significant time we spent together was in the summer holidays at my grand and granddad's house, so like mutual, mutual ground. So we would spend a good couple of weeks every summer in the 90s um, there, and it. What was so nice about our relationship? Yeah, we we still would fight and argue and bicker, and he'd often, you know, want me to do wrestling and like, get the hell away from me. And would just do it anyway. So you know, we still had that brother and sister relationship, but we liked hanging out together. Like we actually really enjoyed spending time together because we we didn't live together and. So I've decided for his birthday, because I don't think he realises, when I think back to my past, that's the best memories I've got, being with Andrew at my grand and granddad's house. And so I've made a box of things that we used to play with and do in the 90s that were significant to both of us. Now, some of the things are daft. I've got Pogs. I don't know if you remember Pogs, like little discs. I've got an an old school uh, Game Boy. I've got some old school wrestling figures. I've got him little That's
1: kind- so cool. That's such little- a cool thirtieth present.
0: Well, yeah, it's like little Kinder Egg toys. Um, I've got him. He's a Manchester United fan, so I've got him the actual strip that he used to always wear. So I find, oh. obviously, his size now, not like, but I find that and a photo of him wearing it when he was younger. Um, I've got my box of retro sweets from the nineties. So like gumballers, nice. nerds, you know, sherbet. So the idea is he opens the box and it's just
1: like a blast of a time that for us uh, was happier. Uh, I just, I can't believe that 90s is retro. That's because 90s is like, (laughs) 90s was yesterday. What do you mean retro? It's such a lovely thing to have have done. And what a lovely positive thing to end on. I actually feel like I, I... I wish I, you'd gone last in a way because I don't have anything <laughs> like that. Like my positive things, as usual, are going to be on um, obsessed with Modern Family and uh, what else. I've been diversifying diversify my running, so I'm now running up into the downs and like kind of down oh. to deep, which is nice. Yeah, but um, oh no, and that's it. I don't really have anything. I should, I always think to myself, think of something positive to finish on, um, and I don't. Really, but you know what? I
0: don't think we always have to have a, a specific thing it's just nice to have a little chat and
1: doesn't it I know I've got somebody coming this weekend I've got my friend Kitty coming to stay this weekend she's um, lives on her own so she's been in uh, obviously social distancing and living on her own all during this period working from home etc etc and now they've changed the rules she can of course oh, come and stay Topple, isn't it? Yeah, so we've got her coming to stay over the weekend, which is is going to come on Saturday. And uh, hopefully if the weather's good, we'll be able to go for a swim or we'll probably just uh, have a few drinks and stuff like that. So that is something to look forward to. But it's nothing as good as yours. I love the idea of putting together a really lovely box of memories for your uh, brother's 30th. That's lovely.
0: I just, I don't think he'll be expecting it. But I also don't think he he realised how significant that time was. And
1: well he was so he was younger so you i think when you're younger you don't fully i mean he'll obviously have his own memories of that time and really appreciate that but for you i think being the older sister it will it will just mean more because you probably felt you had like a caring role and a protecting role
0: I, and I that's something f- that
1: younger siblings don't get yeah i still
0: you know, i'm still he's like my Achilles heel like i'm so protective of him even though he's like like i say six foot, god knows what <laughs>
1: And where does he uh, live?
0: He, he's up in Scotland in um, a place called Dalgette Bay, which is near Dunfermline, where I'm from. So, uh, no, I miss him. I miss him a lot. And the, the other funny thing I think you'll appreciate, his first crush was Nicole Appleson from All Saints.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. So I've got,
0: like, he used to put these awful All Saints posters around our spare room. We shared a, a spare room at my grand's, There wasn't a lot of room. It was constantly... Bloody old Saints everywhere. Was like, what was
1: their oh. first song? That was like 1997? <laughs> oh, no, 1998.
0: Never ever have I ever felt so lonely. No,
1: they had one before then. Oh. I know where it's That's it. That's, <laughs> it. That's it. That's it. Yes. See, that song, that song for me reminds... Me, it must have been 1997, being in the New Forest on a holiday, and I would listen to that, and I was like 16. And I was like, oh my god, I'm so cool <laughs> listening to that, and being like, oh my god, I love All Saints. Oh, I oh those them. were cool though.
0: I just, well, I liked them because they were cool. I didn't like the fact my brother bloody smothered her face with the No, show.
1: no. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't have put a poster. Although probably in those days, I had posters of like Louise Nerding. I'd have, I'd have Louise Nerding, Abba, and Friends on like the same wall. Oh,
0: it's I a combination. had I
1: had
0: a poster of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. I don't think I was allowed to watch the film at the time, but. <laughs> it was such
1: an amazing photo but graphic. it was so good looking when he was younger
0: yeah Like even oh. when he was
1: in friends which is like i don't even know what year that was like 2002 or three or something he was really i feel like he's really lost it as he's got older oh he
0: has no i think he got like 25 kids or something like I've yeah.
1: 100- oh, you know that i was always team aniston and i think that the whole yeah. Brangelina thing just didn't work for me
0: Oh no! It, no, not at all. I yeah, it was so sad. And now I think he's like got a thing for her again. But she's obviously like she is just gorgeous. And she's
1: amazing. She's just amazing. I but love.
0: I'm going. Nah, you could. Nah, this is what you could have had.
1: Yeah. Well, she's kind of won in that respect because he's like this really kind of. He's kind of odd. I don't know. He's not. He's lost all his looks. He is. Doesn't he still smoke? And like, you just think, come on, mate. And I think he had a. I don't know, I don't want to um, say this if it's not right, but I'm sure you have kind of some drinking problem or something like that. I don't know, even if you didn't. Mm. <laughs> I love the way I said you had a drinking problem and you took a swig of your gin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a swig at my gym, like, yes. <laughs> it's lovely to tell you about my crime. Something I really enjoyed yeah.
1: it. I'm going to research it. I'm going to research it from the resources that you post.
0: Well, listen, this has been True Crime Lockdown. Thank you
1: for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. And I look forward to our next one, James.
1: Look forward to the next one. Love you lots.
0: Love you. Bye. Bye.